Hi, and welcome back to the AMPS podcast, our third episode. I'm Owen Peters. And I'm Owen Shirley. And today you find us in a field in Wiltshire in the UK on a bright, cold and quite windy day. And we're actually on Salisbury Plain. Yeah, we're being picked up on uh, a couple of mics and it seemed like a good idea as any to test out some wind protection. So we've got a Sennheiser MKH50 covered with a Bubble Bee spacer bubble and a long-haired spacer cover as well. Alongside that, we have a Sherps MS rig picking us up at the same time. Yeah, and we've also set up as an experiment a Tascam DR100 Mark III, which is covered with a Bubble Bee short-haired spacer cover. And we thought it'd be a nice experiment to see if we can tell the difference, particularly between the two stereo setups, the Sherps and the Tascam. So we've got them running side by side, recording at the same time. So you're listening to the Sherps now, which will run for 10 or 15 seconds. And then we will switch to the Tascam now. And hopefully uh, you'll be able to hear the difference between the two. Now you might be wondering why we've bothered to make the trip to Wiltshire today when we frankly could have set up these mics and recording in a field anywhere at this time of year. But we were inspired to do so because the multi-award winning film 1917 was mainly shot on location here on Salisbury Plain. And the podcast features a discussion um, at an AMPS event arranged by AMPS council member Adrian Bell earlier this year and featuring production sound mixer Stuart Wilson, dialogue supervisor and editor Rachel Tate and supervising sound editor Oliver Tarney. Yeah, and since the uh, sound team have gone on to win the AMPS Award for this year for their work on 1917, uh, we found time to grab some additional interviews with the team um, to just get some more of their insights just for this podcast. So stay tuned after the talk in this episode uh, to hear just a bit more insight to their work and a few more reflections on the process of shooting the film. Yeah, so over to you, Adrian. Welcome to uh, the AMPS uh, talk for production sound on the film 1917, which is out today. It's been nominated for a BAFTA uh, for sound and also recently for the AMPS uh, sound mixing for the film category as well. Uh, We are very honoured to have Stuart Wilson, sound mixer, and Oliver Tarney, the supervising sound editor, and Rachel Tate, dialogue and ADR supervisor with us. So I just wanted to say why we're here and why I kind of put this together is basically about a year ago to the day, there was the mix down event where Tim White was starting to prep and do reccees for the project. And I kind of didn't really understand most of what he was talking about. Um, I think he was playing mostly about the long range RF questions and problems that might be encountered on a job like this. And so I've kind of kept an interest in the project as, as we've been going along. And it turned out to be fairly uh, extraordinary film for many reasons, as we'll find out. Something that I'd not heard of is, is uh, this term proof of concept, which by all accounts was a period where you actually go in with the actors and some equipment and, and you just test the logistics in those locations. Yeah, well, they, because Sam's vision for the film was that the story would take place in one continuous shot. So they, they started 
with the actors, director, cameraman just pacing out scenes with using cardboard boxes to represent trenches or stakes in the ground. And then they would take that into a field and mark out a thing and, and work out that at this point in the dialogue they need to turn a corner or at this point this trench needs to be wide enough for a scuffle to break out or at this point it needs to be narrow enough that they can't pass someone else or so literally the set was designed around the script and as that extended it it became evident that with two 20 year old men walking pretty quickly for 10 minutes talking the whole way that the director wasn't going to keep up with them or didn't want to keep up with them but he wanted to hear them so then you had to have sound there too and they had to have mics on and that was a great dummy run for us to see if we could achieve the distances to have to thank um, Tim White and Pete Davis who ran those rehearsals and did that proof of concept work to see how it would work and what equipment we would need and, and the things that we'd talked about to test them out in the in the field and to start to look at when you've got a trench eight feet deep with a little wet mud on all sides what's that going to do to your rf and when there's bodies in there and so on so so there was a lot of testing so that proof of concept for the camera and for the director and the actors was very useful for us as well was it in the actual locations that you were going to that you actually filmed in in the end or was it just a space? Uh, uh, and it, what it became, yes, it, it was, yeah. So it was marked out as, as the set got built eventually? Uh, yes, some of it was, yeah. This this set, this was an, an old, uh, an airfield called Bovingdon, so that the rehearsals took place before this was even dug, and then as it progressed, it it continued. Yeah. Uh, your initial thoughts on, on how, how you were going to plan for this then, and what were your uh, worries from the outset and how, how did you go about um, plotting that out, planning that out, and, and your conversations with, with uh, Rachel and, and Oliver as well as to how that, that would work. Um, obviously there's the location issue, but then how does, that, how does that relationship then work through from the initial stages? I like to get involved with the film as early as possible and preparation is everything. Yeah. Uh, you know, whether you're employed to do that or not, I'll, I'll be doing what I can. and. Fortunately, I'd worked with the cameraman and the costume designer and the location manager and special effects advisor before, so I was able to start those conversations. And the very practical things of lobbying all the departments going around, people saying, look, don't expect there's going to be electricity on set for you to use because we're shooting in some quiet places and I didn't want to have to have a generator to be the only thing that was making a noise. Was Sam quite accepting to a lot of that, those conversations? Uh, well, he wasn't Im involved in that, you know. I mean, he he had his vision for the film, and he's a he's done a lot of theatre. He's a performance-led director, and he the way I approach it is to to see what's his vision. How does he want to do it? And then I try and work out technically how to achieve that without getting in the way of the the process. But I think being able to go and look at the costumes, the fabrics, see what was noisy, what wasn't, because we were obviously using a lot of wireless mics you would have one jerkin that was it's all wool and leather one would be quiet and another would be rustly and trying to figure out the differences and costume were very good they remade some stuff for us yeah. and seeing how the different treatments with oil and mud and wax that they used to break them down what effect that would have on the the sound and, and where we could 
have mics hidden and sewn into things. We did need a generator in the end, but um, a small one. There was one that we heard about that was new built on the back of a Land Rover that would be able to get to our locations and it was blimped. And so I went to visit the set where it was working uh, on a TV show in a forest somewhere and it, um, so I could have a listen to it and chat with the sound mixer there and see. And, and it, so I decided that it would be fine as long as it could be a hundred yards away from our action. Um, was that for sound or video or? There were a few things that needed yeah. power, like the, the director's video monitors and stuff. Yeah. Um, but my initial approach when this, this one shot idea was that I would have my recorder in a bag and I would run with a camera and just be behind it. But I sort of realized going further into it that number one, I would just be adding more footsteps to the track in the mud. And number two, if we got stuck in a corner and there was nowhere for me to hide, I needed a plan B. And number three, apart from being able to be close to the actors to receive them, it was kind of crucial for the choreography of it that I could also transmit to not only the director, the focus puller, yeah. the but the special effects supervisor and all the other people who had to be able to hear the dialogue and take their cues from that. There's a continuous run and we had to put an antenna Sort of networks and hide antennas. We got the drapes department to make us some uh, bags made from the sandbag material that they were using in the trenches. And we got some artificial grass smeared with mud and we hid antennas on munitions boxes and in piles of mud and in trees and wherever we could to cover the, the area. Footsteps. Footsteps <laughs> and breaths, which are very important to staying connected to the, the characters. I'd, I'd just say that Oliver, one of the first conversations we had, he suggested having a stereo boom. Yeah, yeah an, an MS boom, yeah. And uh, that was uh, used a lot in that, actually. you uh, the, the main challenge I had in that was the four or five people behind the camera going along in the trench, in the mud, and being able to keep what is almost 100% production there and uh, getting out all the crew, but not getting out their feet, keeping their movement. And then also, to top it off, you went to the actual trenches where they filmed that and recorded a load of wild foley from that actual environment and put that in as well. So we were always trying to not surprise Sam with anything posty we were trying to keep it as melded to the original performance as we could and uh i did as much as i could to to uh not have to replace any of it and luckily we, i think we had um two tech adr lines in the end and that was largely down to stuart as well the you had three radio mics on each of them uh plus the boom Yes, yeah, sometimes. Uh, you even have one in the webbing for both of them to just get that movement. Uh, it just I was stunned by the amount of prep and the amount of work Stuart and his guys did. I'm not used to it. <laughs> it was really nice. Was there anything you could do uh, on the sets to take out any footsteps that you wouldn't? I mean, they're such long distances. I guess there was, I mean, it would have been too much work to have. Yes, well, this was funny because you, one minute you're mixing the take and you've got all this really expensive equipment state-of-the-art and beautiful faders and preamps and wireless gear and then they say cut and you run out of the van 
down into the trench. You're lifting up the duckboards. You're putting sand and wood chips underneath. <laughs> and then you're putting them back down on top so you don't see it. And then you're back into because there's squelch. Because every after every take, the cameraman was saying special effects. Oh, hose down the the spoils on the side of the trenches so it's it looks really grim and it's this glistening mud. And then of course the water was collecting on the bottom, so it's this kind of constant you know battle from the squelch to yeah, the yeah it was obviously quite a big rf plan especially having the number of mics on your actors how how did you go about planning that i guess there weren't that many actors so you could you could have a bit of flexibility with being able to put a few more mics on than you might normally do we did buy um things uh, one of the things i i weighed in quite early on with all the other departments about their wireless and that we should all agree to use as low powered transmission as we could. With video as well? With video and camera and everybody. So everyone had to declare what they were using, what the power of it and what the frequency of it was. Yeah. So we could plan um, because I was I didn't want camera crew coming in with watts of power and screwing up for everyone else. And so I went in quite heavily on that with everybody and said, let's concentrate on all the gain on the reception side so we can all coexist and we in the part of the preparation was going to see when the cameras were being tested seeing if there was any noise in their rigs we managed to improve uh the noise there was some gyroscopes on one of their rigs and uh we got there's a company called cobham who made a special version of their video transmitter without a fan in it which um helped a lot as well i think being at the camera tests was good with those physical changes we made but it was also good that the camera crew were then more aware of noise that yeah. they were getting into and also they they knew that it wasn't fine if if it made a noise yeah the gyro noise that was one of the clips you sent to us to say try and clean it up and see if it's i mean your gut feeling was that it wasn't but um that was part of the the testing we did was to we could say absolutely not we've given it a good shot here in post-production that isn't, isn't going to be okay so again that was all part of that that really good dialogue early on it really helps to have posts because the when you get something back from the the editors saying this is not good then the, everybody has to wake up and it's not just a battle of personalities between the camera department and the sound department so we can talk about what kit you did have we filmed in salisbury playing a lot of this stuff and they dug this trench that was 600 meters long and Salisbury Plain is incredible because it's owned by the Ministry of Defense. You've got an area of land this size of the Isle of Wight and nobody lives there. It's incredible. It's like being dropped into this beautiful rolling countryside and allowed to make your film there. And because it was owned by the Ministry of Defense, we even had a no fly zone, which I was like, come on, <laughs> <laughs> for a sound recorder. You know, if there was a plane went over, we could say, who is it? Getting diverted. <laughs> the only one we couldn't get rid of was the SAS because apparently they're not under the army's jurisdiction. <laughs> but uh, that was that was quite something. Anyone any questions so far? Just for Rachel, really, how easy and how is it to get rid of all the crew footsteps? Because that's always an issue. Not very easy. I use RX, RX7 Advanced, and um, it has a spectrogram. So it's a picture or version of all the footsteps and so I play it along with the picture and see the rhythm of them and from there I can see which ones aren't in the rhythm and you have to colour them out and patch them with other bits of sound. It takes a long time. Yeah, so time consuming. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I really wanted to keep all the breaths. You see where um, Blake's walking through and he's 
put all that funny. I didn't want to just get him in and reshoot that because it's it's what he was doing at the time and it, that stuff matters to Sam. Uh, so, yeah, I also had three mics mostly on the actors and the one I used was inside the front of the helmet. He tucked one there and uh, that was the best sounding uh, a lot of the time, but it also picks up the feet. The rest were a little bit muffled and I, I wanted to go with the clear one. Yeah, it was it was tricky. That was my main my main job within RX. Can you can you separate out what you want and what you don't what you don't want? You can yes. basically draw around. Yeah, what you... yeah. It's it's almost like Photoshop. So what's the problem? Then? Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's. Sh- I wish I brought a picture of it. It's it's just a minefield of sound in and mud. Yeah. in mud. Yeah, yeah. And you really want to keep theirs if you can. Yeah. And carve around it and not touch the frequency of the dialogue in amongst it and the breaths. So so. Uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of trial and error. Yeah. Um, as you were on Salisbury Plain, did you have an RF discussion with the MOD at all? They they were fine. Um, we just told them what we wanted to use, and they were fine with that. One problem we did have was you could hear the shelling and the impact zone for the real army who were working. Um, but uh, I think we got away with it. It wasn't happening too much. So no unusual unexplained rf issues we thought would well, do we ask them what we need to stay clear of but they wouldn't approach it in that way we had to tell them what we wanted to use and they were like yeah they just said that was fine we saw that the boom up was above the trenches was that for most of the stuff in the trenches uh yeah we had two boom ups and yes it just depended on the shot sometimes you would be of one in the trench and one above and they would hand over and one of the best bits of equipment we had on this was a mast for the antennas which was a sort of aluminium telescopic mast which you could pump up and getting that up by another meter or two was a lot more effective than adding another few hundred milliwatts to your power and you you're um the van that you were talking to me about, the, uh, did you have it modified to, to get around the site? Uh, yeah, well, we actually, the production bought um, a four-wheel drive, long wheelbase, high-top sort of transit-type van from uh, one of the electricity companies. They were getting rid of it, but it was, it was brilliant. It could go everywhere, and also it was a bit beat up, and we didn't mind drilling into things and building shelves and, and uh, modifying it f- for us with a, a roof rack and stuff where we could mount things on, this, on the roof. Um, did you have kind of three or four mics on each of them most of the time? Yes, no, we, we did. I have to pay tribute to George Mackay. He was, he was, the lead actor was such a trooper he never complained he was so accommodating at one point one day he did have four radio mics on and when he goes into the river because rf underwater is pretty bad he he had two radio mics and two body worn recorders as well to cover the dropouts was that pretty much usable all that it was usable yes very usable but did it get used uh, in the river? No, uh, it was really good, and I had it laid up for ages. And then Sam wanted him to go a bit more dramatic with his breathing, so unfortunately we replaced it. But it was it was really good quality, and I was a bit disappointed about that. I think it was because uh, I don't think Sam realised how loud and thunderous he wanted the river and the music's going f- obviously full tilt the whole way through, yeah. and you just can't hear it unless he's going. <laughs> like that and even then you only just hear it yeah so for, he had two two recorders and two mics on yes but there's also the boom was doing a lot because the the mics under the water were only of use in certain points 
when you're filming at Bovingdon, that was great for you to be able to say, you know, we're just wrapping now. So then I was able to speak to the production and get access to Bovingdon within, you know, it was a few days after they finished before they'd strike the set there. So um, Mike Fenton, uh, one of the sound designers on the project, and I went down um, and they gave us access for half a day and we could just walk around just recording Foley um, and getting slipping around in the mud. Um, and then we used that. Um, that was our first pass. We'd give that to Lee Smith, the editor. And then as uh, things developed, then we would get Foley then to get more you know, very specific things. We'd, we, I love getting Wild Track Foley because it's got that depth, weight and variation that you have. But then Foley for very specific things that the little slips and slides around. So, um, yeah, we just kept building that and building that. And, um, yeah, there's a basic thing in there, obviously. But, uh, yeah, that's that's yeah, that doesn't sound like that from production. <laughs> there's the level of dedication he went to. He had some very expensive leather boots and he went down <laughs> Timpsons and got them to put Blakey's in them <laughs> at great cost, <laughs> ruined them. That's the dedication. Uh, you uh, should mention the shot going into the crater as well, because that's quite interesting. Yeah, well, that was interesting because the the camera at that point that you saw in the behind the scenes goes on a wire cam, and wire cams are used at the football and that, and they have a massive lifting crane at each corner with a a winch, computer controlled winches and uh, generators, and um, but at sports they sound isn't much of a consideration. So when I turned up and it was just too noisy and they said, oh, but there's no dialogue in this section. And I was like, yeah, but there's breathing and there's footsteps and it's as important as dialogue because it's these two men going to no man's land. It's giving us their emotion and it's keeping us connected to them, which was part of the essential idea or how I interpreted Sam's uh, vision for the film, staying connected with the actors all the time. So we got them to swap out their generators and we got in some acoustic barrier sheeting and fencing to put in front of the winches and bring it to something that was a bit more appropriate. All that breathing is totally what they were doing at the time. It's not even moot, it's what they were doing at the time and you can have a go. And George would have been all right at it, but you've got to have the original thing. It's what Sam signed off on. And that's that was our job. Well, I was going to ask how, how difficult that is to replace if you have to go down that road. It depends how good the actor is. George was stunning at it. Dean, not so much. But um, you can't beat being there, doing the efforts. You can't stand in Goldcrest and just do that. Not really. And uh, we wouldn't want to anyway. And just one thing, the biplane in that shot the again the production were fantastic we got um access to for those of you seen the film i don't think we have the clip of that one where there's the dogfight between the british and german fighter pilots but um so we had one of each of the two planes um for half a day and uh you know they were amazing at going to um great lengths to uh, organize that for us it was real and raw sounding and this is that sort of crossover between the traditional way of fighting with this two sides lining up on either side of the field and then this more industrialized version where you know, they could kill people more efficiently, but this is that, that, so that crossover period. So to hear the sort of rawness of uh, this machinery that was sort of developing very quickly in this era. So we're just going to go back to some costume work and how you prep some of your mics. Ah, uh, yes, this is, I think this is actually from the proof of concept, so this is, uh, yeah. which Pete Davis did for us, and he made a lot of notes and um, tried a lot of, experimented with a lot of things, which was a basis for... Um, our, uh, how we started with the radio mics and in, in the helmets and in the the costumes. 
the soldiers wear a, a jacket and a jerkin as well. So we were able to have a mic sewn into both and um, we could find out whether the wool would be enough to break the wind or if we needed um, some fur in there as well to, to, to help that. How, how did it work with the, uh, the crew working with the standby costume? And how, did, were you doing a lot of pre-calls and getting mics on them? Or how, how did that, that effort work every day? We had the, the mics were done the costumes. Uh, uh, Tom would generally go, I mean, things would be pretty much set up at night or he'd go in the morning and rig things before. Um, I think that one of the toughest ones was when um, the actor goes in the river that we probably had four complete costumes rigged with two mics each so that he could come out, swap it out, um, and we would just move the, the transmitters. I'd often be rigging a jacket while they were using one so that we could swap it out. And yeah. I was just trying to, what, what we would do is we'd feed mics into the lining of the costumes so that they could be out. Do we even do pre-calls or anything to, to get to get them all set up for the start of the it, day? Yeah, it depended on the day. Yeah. Uh, some days, some days, due to the nature of the way we were filming it, I'd start off at the base while these guys were doing all of the heavy lifting um, on the set with all of the RF fiber and all of that shenanigans. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I'd be in the costume track first thing. One of the benefits of this film in terms of post-production was um, the director and editor made their choices very, very early. You know, during film, they were locking sections of the film as they went through and within a couple of weeks of uh, finishing filming, locked the film pretty much. That was it, you know, other than a couple of tiny tweaks. So for us in post-production, when you're doing a, a first pass, the clip mics sounded fantastic, and but they actually sounded too clean. And one of the benefits of very stable picture lock was Rachel was able to then go in and was the boom. That was one where we had a lot of crew feet in, wasn't it? I think wind. was it a win. Sorry, yeah. And um, in a normal film, you probably wouldn't be able to um, spend too much time trying to to get them usable like that. But um, it was always lacking that natural kind of variation off-axis thing that you get from a boom mic um, and the fact that the picture was staying locked uh, meant you could just keep going, working at them, working at them, and in the end they're in there and it just, it filled that gap between the dialogue and all the foley and it just, yeah, made it really natural sounding. So um, that was a definite benefit from yeah. And actually, uh, as they're walking down the hill there, he's talking about, he gave the medals with a French guy. Um, there's a moment where the camera, I think they've zoomed in the shot slightly. It's not as obvious, but I, uh, I don't know if you remember when you filmed it. As they're walking down the hill, the camera pulls right back, goes around a couple of trees and then comes back near to them for the orchard. So the, during that point, the boom just couldn't get near. And before uh, we worked at it a lot, uh, there was wind on everything. Everything had the <laughs> all the way through it. You, I don't know if you can see the trees and the plants are doing that. We've made it sound quite still now, but it was really windy. And uh, for that moment where the boom pulls back, it was just, it sounded so close at that point where they're so far away from the camera. It was a tough one. So uh, we just had to EQ the hell out of it and try and add a load of top and a load of low end but without boosting the wrong stuff. And eventually we got there, but that was one of the sections where we did the most work to the dialogues and it wasn't anything you could do to help it. It was just because for that moment, you just couldn't get the boom near them. For those of you who have seen that, you'll know it's sort of in between two big events and the mine, and then you're going up to the, the second biplane section. And it does, it's quite stripped back. I guess out of context, it feels probably too stripped back. But that was one of the things of a continuous take is if you kept the intensity level up and detail up of everything um, all the way through on a two hour film, it's actually too much and you start to sort of disengage. So we would have to build in dynamics all the way through. So we built up 
to the mine um, and the event that happens at the mine. And then just after that, bring everything back down again. You know, even the backgrounds and everything really, really low, um, even in the little uh, valley bit there before that, um, even quieter than that. And then building back up through up until they get to the farmhouse. But we would record different levels of detail in the foley for all the webbing and things so you'd have just the, the plain one then you'd have the bayonet separate and you so depending on where it was in the film we could add detail in or strip it back so that basically just make it a simpler sound so that you give the audience some respite from the intensity that you have in the previous bits because you can never cut away to something quieter so you're having to just do that on sort of long arcs you know built um, going down and then back up again and um, would you get all of stuart's tracks to work with pretty soon after it was shot yeah really fast actually it was kind of within days so uh the day after they shot it lee smith the editor took everything in he picked his take which usually matched up with what sam had chosen he said and then he gave us maybe those two or three takes or whatever they'd shot uh, put together uh we'd get that straight the next day in sound within the a day we would have cleaned it up as best we could send them a, a mono dialogue a stereo effects back to them in the cutting room that day the end of that day so that he could show it to sam as a first hey look what you got the other day he had to know now if it was working just when they're trying to evaluate the previous day's work a big part of it was to evaluate pacing so if you're injecting all that sound in there and uh, making it feel more dynamic i think that helped them evaluate whether or not they'd got the right kind of timing for that take what makes this kind of unique in the way that you worked um, as a process between all of you? Just with the continuous shot thing, I, I spoke to the post-production supervisor and then Lee Smith um, about how brave we wanted to be in terms of... Um, I hadn't worked with Sam before, but I um, had heard he has um, very strong ideas about sound and we wanted to get sound in early so that he would get used to what we were doing and start collaborating with us early on. So we actually were on I think maybe four or five weeks after they started filming, we started doing some basic work um, and then built that up through production. We actually had even, I think, maybe 10 days of Foley recording planning planned during the production phase, which is uh, or maybe actually five or six days, but then as soon after. But um, so even whilst they were filming, we were shooting Foley, which is which you certainly would never do that to a budget normally. But we kind of knew that they were wanting to have uh, material in early and they would, during the director's cut, when you're normally cutting, um, they were focusing on sound, music and VFX. So again, that's why we wanted to get everything in early and prepped so that about a week after they finished filming, we had given them a good pass of the whole film. And did you, did you use MS mics, MS mics throughout most of the dialogue? No, not most of it, no. Um, unfortunately, the crew feet, uh, it would have been beautiful to have because they were great tracks, but yeah. the, the crew feet really um, meant that was difficult. But there were definitely a few places where it was, and when it does work, it's, a, it's yeah, wonderful, yeah. yeah. There wasn't much ADR, was there, really? Uh, there was added lines if they decided yeah. to change a line. There was two tech lines. Doesn't count, does it? No. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't count. <laughs> no. Uh, and then you mentioned the ground loop, uh, which I didn't understand either. Uh, Rachel. The loop group, the oh, the loop group. Yeah, <laughs> crowd recording, basically. Um, obviously, the extras uh, don't all have mics, and when they do, they aren't allowed to talk most of the time. So for those of you who don't know, we go and do at least a day of crowd recording with uh, usually about 20 guys. And we decided to, it was Oliver's idea, to get half actors instead of usually get all actors. We got half actors and half soldiers, current TA guys we got in, all about 18 to 25 and it was really 
good actually. We filmed it outside with the same mic Stuart used so that we could match in. We did a five hour array around them and got them in the middle outside in a field. And I play them a little scene on my laptop and then they'd get what they had to do and then they'd run in the middle and they they had actual stretches, they'd carry each other around. Um, I've got some uh, hilarious videos, which I should have brought in. And they helped because the military guys had all the the right tone of voice and they knew what you would say, how you talk to each other, how you stay flat. A lot of the actors can't stay flat when you tell them to, they just can't do it. And the actors bought the performing side of it. They were just, they weren't inhibited at all. So they got all the military guys out of their shells and between them, they created this proper crowd we could actually use. And then after we got these recordings, we would EQ match them back to any crowd that uh, we had on set, which Stuart recorded, especially for the triage. Half of that pretty much is from set, half of it's uh, ours. So the width of it is ours. We've got the uh, mono from production in the middle and everything around it, all the breaths and efforts and stuff there, the 20 guys that we got in Shepparton in a field. Yeah, we EQ matched it so that it would just sit right in. We didn't want Sam to really notice any of it. We wanted him to just think he picked it out and it was like that at the time. And he, he just watched it the first time and went, yeah, they were good then. <laughs> just, he just thought the extras were great. And yeah. I don't even know if he knows what was added and what wasn't. And also we didn't want them to just do walla 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 or talk about iPhones or something you can't use. So we, I read quite a lot of nerdy books about jargon and medical terminology and, and um, military terms and wrote like a starter phrase that they could just, between the two of them, one would say that and then they just talk about that for a bit so that they had chance to perform, but they we're talking about the actual thing we could use. Two or three weeks before starting work on the film, we, um, we actually took a trip over to Ypres and um, went to Passchendaele to the World War I Museum there. Um, and just to try and get an insight into what life would have been like um, to get your head into that space. And um, yeah, bought, Rachel bought a load of books um, with jargon. And so that was for the just trench um, life. That was basically the basis. She just had, yeah, there's like six or seven books in her cutting room that she was just, yeah getting amazing stuff from there and huge amounts of writing. So they would never, they would never go um, sort of dead, the actors. It would, they could keep it going. Yeah. yeah, so it's not out and out, wall-to-wall -wall crowd, which if we were doing Bourne or like we did a few years ago, it would be, it would, there would be energy holes and you'd have to fill it constantly. And we, they didn't want that. They wanted what they shot. And so we had to sneak in everything around that mono without it sounding like a movie. Uh, added stuff so it was also kept quite sparse for that vignette feeling for hearing what he would hear as he walked through not all the 500 guys around because at the start we had one boom with our hero there all the time another boom running around the back to get ahead for the the extras where we were going to go next in case that was wanted it's a shame you like this a lot of music isn't there <laughs> which which kind of masks a lot of the the amazing work that's been done. But how was how was the final mixing? Um, yeah, great. I can honestly say um, for those of you in post production, you you know you know you basically sit there and watch a film um, for months and months and months every day. Um, and at some point in that schedule, you kind of get you know that project fatigue, um, and uh, you <laughs> it doesn't affect you in the same way. And this one, genuinely, you know, right through to the end, you know, it still affected everyone. It was there is just something about the film that um, yeah, everyone connected with. Any questions? Explain to us how you get 
um, those distances between your actors to you and you to Sam and everybody else needs to hear? Uh, we some scenes would be like a sort of site specific installation um, and we used hundreds of meters of fiber optic cable so we could have antennas at all the distances that we needed them and then combine them and we actually at one point had to flip that around because we were traveling in the army truck and we had to use the antenna network that we'd put in to get the sound back to uh, Sam, who was effectively at the, the little, I suppose, the starting point, the base. So we flipped around and used it the other way around. But yes, it was just um, antennas everywhere being combined and to, to cover the distances, really. And I must say, I never got a dropout. I never got, uh, had any problem with any mics. Uh, it was like, these are the best tracks I, I've ever had. And to, to have all those problems and challenges... And sure, they had time to rehearse, but they needed it. And and, and it, it was just amazing to get tracks like that. I've had a lot far simpler films with far worse sounding tracks. I was stunned. It was, <coughs> it was great work from Stuart and the guys. Anyone else? I was just wondering about uh, directionality on the antennas and if, if that came into play, if you had different directionalities for some and... Or not all? We used all, well, nearly all directional antennas, um, apart from for the the IEMs to transmit to the all the people that had to hear it. And then we used, quite often used omnidirectional antennas for that, but they would be directional pointing wherever they needed to point and then covering the kind of relay from, from one to the next. Yeah, and uh, using uh, WYSICOM receivers was very good because each receiver is has two receivers in it so it's a true diversity receiver so you're it's always ch choosing the best signal Stuart it, it didn't look like the kindest environment for uh, personal mic heads how many did you start with and how many were working <laughs> at the end the uh, we did yes we did lose a few um, not 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 too many um, I think because the the costume people we knew quite well and the actors were quite good so there wasn't too much of chucking it on the floor in the trailer with a pile of clothes and stepping on it but no we did replace a few yes some of them got trashed a bit good well guys thank you very much um Stuart, kate oliver thank you very much for joining us tonight um thank you guys for coming uh thank you to amps for supporting tonight and good luck in the award season thank you very much guys Welcome back to Salisbury Plain, where we are still standing out in the cold to bring you the second part of this AMPS podcast episode. Yes, and now that talk that you've just heard uh, was carried out shortly before this year's award season, which went extremely well for the film 1917, and particularly for the sound teams, um, who've picked up multiple awards, which I'll now try and list for you, so bear with me. So at the Oscars, the Academy Award for Sound Mixing went to Stuart Wilson and Mark Taylor, at the BAFTAs, Best Sound was awarded to Stuart Wilson, Mark Taylor, Rachel Tate, Oliver Tarney and Scott Milan. And the award that everyone's talking about, the AMP's Excellence in Sound for a Feature, was also awarded to 1917. And now AMP's, in recognition of clear, intelligible dialogue, also awards boom ops and supervising dialogue and ADR editors, as well as the traditional heads of department. 
So the Amps Award this year went to Stuart Wilson, Hugh Sherlock, Tom Fennell, Rachel Tate, Oliver Tarney and Mark Taylor. And in addition, certificates of merit were awarded to the rest of the sound team, including production sound mixer Tim White. So yeah, congratulations to everyone mentioned there for well-deserved awards. We're now just going to pass you back over to production sound mixers Tim and Stuart, who are going to talk more about their experiences on the film. They'll also be followed by Tom and Hugh, first assistant sound, who will talk about the experience of boom hopping and rigging lav mics under such unique conditions. This was all captured at this year's AMPS AGM, and we got a chance to speak to them in person. Tim and Stuart, congratulations for the AMPS Award, uh, all other awards, but we like to think the AMPS Award is the most important. Uh, yes. So yeah, well, we it want... is at least voted for by people who know what they're what they're voting on, so that's good. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we appreciate uh, that. Yeah, I would think so. Um, and it seems a very popular film with AMPS members, uh, myself included, um, and the wider community as well. And the 1917 talk was just fascinating. So we just wonder if it, now at this point with a bit more time to reflect, if you had any more thoughts about the production, uh, maybe things that you'd learned from working on such a unique production as 1917. Well, I think I have to give a, a chance for Tim because he set up and sort of road tested a lot of the ideas that we had for being able to achieve the long distances that we did. Tim was the one who was there on the early rehearsals with the director and the cast pacing it through and working out a lot of those logistics so um well no it was it was an amazing experience and stepping in for the first couple of months before Stuart was available to get that infrastructure in place and it wasn't just the technical side of it um Sam is an amazing director and the way he was working with those actors and being in on that because of course even the rehearsals were done at quite a distance and so we had the guys mic'd up and and um, you know we were feeding IEM back to Sam, and um, it was it was extraordinary working with a guy of that calibre. And those those young actors were just extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. And then we had the proof of concept, and we had to work out everyone, every single department had a challenge on their hands, whether it was the art department dressing a trench which was God knows how many hundreds of metres long, or the camera side of things, you can see that straight away. And we had similar challenges ahead of us. Um, and I suppose the fundamental thing for us is that we couldn't just boost the power to get stuff back to us because, you know, more, more than 50 milliwatts, you're going to cook someone's brains okay. if, if you've got a transmitter in the helmet. So we had to stick to low power and then use much, much closer antennas. And um, it was how we were going to get them down and cope with those losses and make it all work. And that was a planning exercise and a logistics exercise of getting all that equipment together and making it work. Yeah, of course. I think there was also in the, on that subject the um, because with all the departments we're, we're relying on on uh, radio frequencies and transmitters, so we had to sort of lobby everybody to stick with low power transmitters and put all the emphasis on the receiving side, um, so that we would all be able to coexist in the in the same sort of spectrum. Yeah. Okay. Were there things that you took away specifically from being on this? Uh, challenges that maybe taught you more about the equipment or ways of working? We did uh, use some new equipment that I hadn't used before and I think because we're all being continually squeezed in the wireless uh, in the, the spectrum we're losing spectrum um, that we're having to constantly adapt um, 
to, to ways of, of keeping clean enough clean channels for our actors and comms and I think this was just a sort of extreme example of that not having to find ways to adapt to to hold on to those those signals which should be useful for other things but using lots of antennas and fiber optic cable was a was a new thing which was um uh you wouldn't want to do it on every show but um that enabled us to do things that we hadn't done before that was really complex what we did and mm. we had pieces of equipment that we're not going to use again um but then there were pieces of equipment smaller pieces of equipment which were really really good and we've now got both Stuart and I have the ability to use more than one set of antennas at the same time okay. and it was I think Stuart just said to me I don't think I ever want to be in a situation where I don't have that opportunity to use more than one antenna okay because it gets you out of trouble you know yeah. it can also get you in trouble as well if you have an antenna when you don't need it but that's you know another thing but it's we did we did gain a lot from it and you know most of it the great thing about 1917 is a great soundtrack and it's mm. very natural and Stuart captured a hell of a lot and but the technology was behind it and it enabled that track to you know come together yeah you know and yeah just things like for instance when we when we did the tests and when we did the proof of concept I had a four-wheel drive with a trailer behind it and my kit in it and it was just filthy it was horrible and then by the time we got to the film we had an ex power gen ford transit van which was permanent four-wheel drive so mm. it could be taken anywhere enormous ground clearance and everything so it was like a small control room it was it wasn't luxury by any means but it would go anywhere and it was it was relatively dry muddy on the floor but it was you know a good environment to work from things like that getting that sort of stuff in place and you know, realising from the rehearsals that it had to be a step up on that because it was no way to record sound with all your stuff in that mud. So yeah, it okay. was great to have that learning process first, learn from that and then put that onto the production. Another thing was that the hopefully more producers will realise the value of prep for sound because a lot of people don't get any prep. They think, well, they've just got to load the van, haven't they? But um, actually, you know, breaking down the script and working with other departments to to get a better result um i think this was a very collaborative project and i think the result w that we had with where the costume department the art department the electrical department the camera department and the sound department there was a mutual respect between everyone because we were all pushed into this way of working in close collaboration and uh, i'd like to see that go on on other films i know that it will with the people who were involved in 1917 but i hope with other um uh, heads of creative departments on other films we can keep that kind of collaboration and, and prep time going yeah absolutely couldn't agree more with production and in production and post those kind of early preparation conversations must yeah. save so much trouble mm -hmm. uh, and open up possibilities I suppose that might not have been there otherwise without that communication. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that the because the post team got involved quite early on, and we're, so we're able to come and record fully on location and um, uh, get ahead on on recording planes and vehicles and guns and stuff like that. So that was that was great. We it could all happen at the right time during the production, which was you know quite efficient well thanks so much and congratulations again um i'm keen to let you go back to celebrating 
Tom and Hugh, congratulations for your AMPS award and Thank all you. of the awards for 1917. It's been a huge success, rightly so. And we're just really glad to have an opportunity to just speak to you both about your experience being part of the production sound, such a big part of the production sound. Yeah. Obvious question, but we're talking about a lot of movement. I'm imagining more movement than you might even have on an average production. There's that great photo, the one of us over mm. the uh, trench and what was happening on that one maybe uh, is we have a camera it, because we were lucky it was just one camera which was lovely okay. um, but um, the, we had to uh, oh, for instance in that on that occasion so it, it came into that that trench and uh, and then they do a complete 360 so what you're seeing there is the two boom operators I think I was I was probably falling over at that point and hiding <laughs> in the in the act of hiding behind, as Hugh had just jumped but jumped up, um, and he'd been crouched down um, until we we sort of communicated that um, Peter, the Sedicam operator, had just reached that point, um, and I'd give the nod and Hugh would jump up and took over and then and then did the messy bit um, as they moved on <laughs> with the explosions after that moment. But it was it was a it was a real. Um, uh, moment of coordination and, yeah uh, but, i mean there's throughout the whole thing because of the way it's shot obviously there's there's a huge amount of choreography um that like that would take a lot of forward planning um to the point with other sections of it i would um have to go to the art department like weeks before have a look at all of the trench maps of the trenches aerial views of the trenches um go and speak to the camera guys walk through it with them in terms of all of their pivot points um, angles, uh, what they're seeing, what they're not seeing, and then potentially speak to the art, uh, one of the art directors, and like sections of it, we'd have like a 80 meter trackway built for us along one section of the track where we, the, the trench was too narrow, or they'd be seeing bits of it where we'd get scuppered. Um, so it was about kind of preempting every eventuality, and then between the two of us um, on the booms, uh, scooping it all up. But yeah, I mean, on that first week we had in Bovingdon, which was making me feel that this was going to be a horrific experience, um, which actually turned out to be a wonderful experience. Um, but um, but that first week at Bovingdon, it was so muddy, and uh, and Hugh'd requested a. I, I thought it was more than 80 meters, but was, I don't know how how often you've had to go and ask the standbys or the art department for a bit of um, decking, but um, but to get uh, 100 meters of Jonesy deck takes a bit of uh, coercion and, uh, and convincing, um, but he managed to do it, and um, and we and uh, so there were moments where uh, again we had these moments of coordination and. Uh, that was quite an ordeal. I've, I've never asked for that much decking before, so it was. It was the only way to go. It, yeah. it was because there was the <laughs> spill of the um, of the trenches. So this was when they were actually walking down the trenches, and it was that um, you couldn't stand on the spill, as I found out to my um, <laughs> at one point. It was a little bit unsteady, and um, but it's quite high, so we had to have that elevation in order to uh, walk, you know, above with the booms. And would it be fair to say that neither of you would experienced anything quite like that or was it very similar to techniques that you usually employ just um, turned up to 11 yeah exactly i think it, it's yeah. kind of i don't think any of it was totally new uh it's just more complicated and long like just longer takes yeah. and you're you're incorporating 10 difficult things that you might have done on 10 separate occasions all into one shot i mean that that it was the element of um, knowing that the shots have to last for five minutes, you know, sometimes or, or eight—I don't know how long the longest one was—but yeah. you had to 
Um, so I was dealing with the costumes and, and the microphoning, microphoning of the costumes. <laughs> and, um, <coughs> and so, uh, but we were told that, you know, we had to account for the fact that uh, layers were going to come off or, you know, they're going to move in a shot. And, um, mm. and usually if something's not quite right, as it occasionally is, you'd, you'd, you'd be able to say, okay, well, you know, you have other opportunities, but they have to work on this. You know, they, they're going to be turning around, they're going to be roughing people up, having a, doing all of these things, and they're wearing a lot of, a lot of straps and things like that. So it, it just had to work. Because there are times when, you know, you're not always going to be there with a boom. You can't, just yeah. the nature of the filming. Mm -hmm. um, so um, we had mics fed into the layer of the costumes, and there was like, the only place that wasn't actually really affected by all of the strapping and the, everything else was, I mean, the helmets were wonderful. And then also we had mics um, threaded into the lining of the, the jackets right to the point of the, around the buttonhole. And the packs were hanging in the back of their jackets, yeah. stitched in or, or kimballed in. Um, a lot of costume collaboration. Yeah. And they'd have to refresh the costumes after every take. So, so sometimes yeah, if course. they got dirty, you'd have to. Um, so I, I was um, collaborating with the costume department who were wonderful because having worked with these guys for about the last, a lot, some of them I've worked with over the last seven or eight years um, on the same films. We've just happened to be in that, um, in, in sync with each other, with our departments. Um, being able to go to people that I knew and have that conversation um, about, you know, getting mics in places they don't really want you to have them um, was so much easier and, and having that level of trust and it just gets rid of all of that, you know, that, those problems that you have with the new people and the Absolutely. Uh, establishing a relationship. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, all of these things, um, when we have microphones, well, George was like a microphone Christmas tree uh, <laughs> for quite a lot of time. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, because he just had to account for the different layers and the, and the various. Um, I was, yeah. Uh, yeah. I was just going to say it was it was a total blessing having two two and a half months of technical rehearsals, um, where we could actually start thinking about all of this stuff. And the first rehearsals, obviously, we just turn up empty field. Um, with posts along the way and you start to get an idea of the movement so even like where Dean is going to get grabbed on his jacket uh, on the like at what point they hit the deck and they're on their chest when the helmets fall off uh, and this is this is a bit you did with Tim White because um, yeah, exactly. we were working on another film at the time and so Stuart yeah. was trying to coordinate all of this um, but uh, so Tim and uh, and this was with Pete, uh, Pete wasn't Davis, it? Yeah. Pete Davis and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they did the the first steps, getting the RF out yeah. and then trying to work out how we were going to tackle that, which was the other massive um, challenge of this job is having a, a half a half a mile of trench and uh, thinking how you're going to get reception because they're also down in the mud as well. So, you know, they're, they're six yeah. feet below you and and in the trench of clay that through, absorbs yeah, the RF like nothing else. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, so they uh, they reeled out the first reels of um, of fiber and uh, and a lot of copper cable as well. Work, yeah. Working out the extremities of the the using a, an antenna combiner with um, with copper cable and and we had a big chart and this is where David Giles and um, Tom Wilkin really put in and 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 also Rob Pillar who came in specifically for the fiber. Um, mm. They really put in a lot of hard work um, it, as much as the physical element of just 
running these things out for each set, they'd um, they'd have a, a chart of uh, the various um, uh, gain loss, it, and gain loss yeah, yeah, impedance of the different bits of cable we were using, and and how long they could run them, and the difference, you know, for the different bits of kit. Yeah. So um, and then and we have Michael Furon and um, and Tom Dornan as well. So yeah. And they, they worked hard, didn't they? They worked really hard. Well, we, the beginning so of the day was quite... Uh, yeah. Luckily, I was off in the costume world. Um, you know, <laughs> Taking I'm it not easy saying I was having a coffee and... Tom would waltz in with his coffee and I'd I'd be be <laughs> dripping <laughs> with sweat. <laughs> well, there were some, some days we had over... I think we had over two miles of cable run out on single days. Oh, that and every yeah. evening we'd have to pull it all back in, yeah, give it some sure. semblance of a clean, pull it all back out the next day. Um, and then Stuart say, "Oh, I think we should get a wild track of this uh, <laughs> this uh, vehicle. These um, ancient, and they were the original um, vehicles that you know, some of the last in existence. Yeah. And um, so we we stayed out a few nights doing these things. But then obviously the fibre couldn't be reeled in until this was done. Yeah, yeah, so true dedication to there was some, there was some was five hours of of OT getting I was yeah. overtime getting wild tracks that evening. Yeah, yeah. Well, the prep and the effort certainly pays off. I mean, you can hear it. Uh, in the detail and quality of the soundtrack all around. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, just congratulations again to both of you. It's really great achievement and uh, happy to recognize it as part of the AMPS Awards. Yeah, great. thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks. Okay, so we hope you enjoyed those discussions, which we find really fascinating. Such an interesting project for them all to have worked on and they've all been rightly rewarded. And we'd obviously like to thank, firstly, Adrian for arranging the initial talk and to uh, Rachel, Stuart, Oliver, Tom, Hugh and Tim for their time in talking to us. It's been really interesting. We'd also like to thank Bubblebee and Sennheiser, uh, some of our sustaining members in AMPS. Um, they've been indispensable in allowing us to come out here and record uh, in some pretty strong wind, uh, get good sound. And also we'd like to thank Andrew Wilson for driving us here in the first place in his Land Rover. Yeah. Well, thanks, Andrew. And I imagine he's about to drive us to a pub. Absolutely. Of course, we're always welcoming feedback and any notes. So feel free to get in touch with us via Twitter or Gmail. Uh, our email is ampspodcast at gmail.com. And our Twitter handle is at ampspodcast. Yes. And if you are interested in joining Amps, then please visit the website amps.net and there's plenty of information there about how to do so. Thanks very much. Cheers. Cheers, bye.